Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dosho Port Roshi. So thank you, Roshi, for joining me today on this Spark Zen podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Where shall we begin our conversation about Zen? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the most important thing in, in Zen is the, the direct pointing to the possibility of intimate verification with the truth of the Buddha Dharma, but in a sense that's a, also a container that is helpful but not necessary because it's, it's really just the, the radical permeability of this one great life. And you know, this Zen way is, is wonderful in calling that out and uh, calling it out deeply and thoroughly for the benefit of all living beings. So so for that reason, we put on the robes, we put the robe on the head, say the verse, etc. But it's, it's not in service of the institution or the denomination or our belief system. In my view, best done when it's in service for that deeply personal and at the same time intimately universal uh, expression and experience. In one of your talks, you speak about the three views of awakening, and I feel like that would be a helpful frame for our conversation. The first view of awakening you spoke of was, we're already awakened, right? Original enlightenment, Mm -hmm. hongaku, Uh right? Meditation without a goal. So this is what we would call in Soto Zen, the shikintaza, just sitting practice. The second one is, what about Kensho? Okay. And the third is sudden enlightenment, however, with a gradual cultivation of the post-Kensho so that it permeates our bones and marrow and blood. All of those are important, of course, and to you know, really be grounded deeply in the Buddha Dharma, we find that there's this fluency between the seed and the fruit and the fruit and the seed kind of approaches, you know. So in the texts that are primarily about original enlightenment, they also emphasize the importance to realize that, you know, like in the awakening faith, for instance. I think that there's a tendency in the modern world to get pretty one-sided with things. So, I mean, the, the original enlightenment folks weren't saying that you didn't need to do anything. They were doing really intensive practice. Our Tendai ancestors, 90-day practice periods without leaving the room and without sleeping. I mean, it's intense. So that was their purpose was to realize that. But so in in the in this great way that that's the seed to fruit and fruit to seed is really harmonized. So I was just looking at something that kind of blew my mind with the three trainings, you know, Sheila, Samadhi, and Wisdom. And the characters for that simultaneously express the fruit to the seed and the seed to fruit. In English, you have to kind of separate them out. So the seed to fruit approach precepts are going up to firm virtue training or improving through firm virtue training. The second, unification, they use the character for unification rather than samadhi, going up to formless absorption training. 
So it's, you know, unifying the mind all the way through the form and formless absorptions. Wisdom going up to supreme wisdom training. So it says that. You can read the characters like that. You could also read them as precepts, unimpeded precept training. Mm. Unification, unimpeded mind training. Mm. Wisdom, unimpeded wisdom training. So that kind of intelligence is hardwired into the tradition, and it's, it embraces the whole thing. So, and one, one of the perspectives that it embraces is this importance to realize it for yourself, which generally, you know, I've been, been harping on this for years, I think, you know, kind of a, a drippy uh, kitchen faucet in the, in, the Soto Zen, in the Soto Zen world is an image that came up recently. Because uh, there's a there's, there's a sense that uh, we're kind of losing the Kensho tradition, which is which is important, and you know I've, I've done a bunch of work over the years about that, and you know most of the great ancestors all the way through Suzuki Roshi, etc., Katagiri Roshi have enlightenment experiences that they talk about. So it isn't the case that these are just unnecessary in Soto Zen. Yeah, well, you speak about Menzan, the 18th century Zen reformer, and he talks about Renzai and Soto as one track, no mm-hmm. side roads. When you speak of <clears throat> koan introspection and just sitting, could you talk a little bit about how you feel that may be a fluid yet complete ever-turning enso of our practice? Right. Yes. Well, Menzon said that. And it's also, of course, on the, the Ketchimyaku, the blood vein document itself for Soto Zen, that it's one road. So our lineage, the Soto lineage, is actually really diverse and inclusive. And from the early ancestors in Japan, multiple lineages included. So there's this sense of both the narrow and the wide. I think that's you know a particular virtue to transmission in Soto Zen is that it's both very specific but also wide, including all of the Buddha Dharma, really. Within this three views of awakening, mm-hmm. the first one, where we're already awakened, wisdom runs through all things, as Dogen says. Mm-hmm. The shadow side of that is why practice, right? Which is what prompted Dogen to leave Japan. Mm-hmm. So it feels to me from my own experience and from listening to yourself and other teachers who speak openly of the K word that somehow the pendulum has swung. Maybe it's been swinging obviously for a while to a lack of effort because, Oh, I already, I already got it. There's already enlightenment here. Why, why do I have to fan myself? You don't have to, but if you know if you're if you you know arouse the way-seeking mind and really find it in your heart to realize this uh, same heart as the Buddha and all the ancestors, then and you want to live with integrity, then then it does become you know, kind of uh, a responsibility to go deeply and realize that. 
it's really this thing about in Soto Zen there being no Kensho is kind of a 20th century phenomenon largely and there's no evidence for for it before then. Griff Falk presents to me a compelling case that that Dogen didn't even teach Shikantaza and Shikantaza just sitting wasn't even taught as a separate meditation technique until maybe the 19th century maybe the 20th century so this is the the funny thing is that 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 approach of just sitting zen looks like it's kind of a new thing historically but it wraps itself as the tradition <laughs> mm, mm, and it's not you know so we see in men's on also you know he he was seized with the great doubt about one of the staff koans from you know gaelish barrier and and you know as a kid really 1617 you know until he had a breakthrough with it so we see that same kind of urgency to awaken in the Soto ancestors as in the uh, Rinzai ancestors. And in the classical period, there's essentially no difference between the lineages. Mm-hmm. So I've done quite a lot of reading, translating with especially 13th century texts. I'm very interested in those figures for some reason. And they all are working with, with koans. Now, are they working with them in seated meditation, which is some of my critics say there's no evidence that they're working with them in zazen, that zazen would be a koan-free zone. <laughs> and But from my point of view, I mean, they don't necessarily all say, yes, sit with this. But the nature of inquiry is that you carry it everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. and and that was certainly Dogen's spirit. He koanized using the toilet. He koanized working in the kitchen. He, you know, he koanized service. So then he wouldn't koanize zazen. Well, mm-hmm. I'd say there's no evidence for that. In in fact, when Dogen uh, talked about what zazen is, he either said it is the koan realized. In other words, in order to do zazen, you actually have to have kensho the zazen he's talking about, or with the thinking, not thinking, non-thinking koan. So, you know, for example, so I think our tradition has these incredible resources to support people in the journey of awakening. And and part of my purpose these last, I don't know, 20 years has been to help kind of draw those out. Where do you feel that the uh, the lamp of Kensho has been snuffed out or at least a little covered in the Soto tradition as it stands in North America these days? Well, I think largely the, the emphasis on just sitting as the as an end is great after Kensho. And I think the best way to learn how to do just sitting really is through Kensho and especially the checking questions for, for Mu, actually. This has been the most effective way I've seen people learn how to do just sitting. But as an ideology or a belief system, I think it's just pernicious because it, it conflates delusion and awakening. And this is a classic error in, in the Buddha Dharma. Within the context of the Buddha Dharma, it's, it's a classic error. You cannot find sutra support for that view anywhere. So it's just, it's just, a, it's just a wrong view, in my opinion. And also, it's one of the most meaningful and powerful experiences a person can have in this life. So what the heck are we doing discouraging people from practicing with the kind of wild abandon that's necessary to really claim that part of our inheritance as human beings? 
that just seems like wrong to me that people would do that. I think, and I think, so I think they should stop doing it. If they haven't experienced it, fine. But then don't discourage other people from having that experience. It's like falling in love. Ken shows that kind of deeply meaningful experience. And like, just because you've had a bad experience with falling in love, probably you shouldn't discourage people from falling in love because it's a wonderful part of human life. You said that your root teacher, Katagiri Roshi, who's also my teacher's root teacher, that he said to you to return to the Zen of the sixth ancestor, Wei Neng. What has been, what was your understanding of that when he said that to you and, you know, these past 20 years of practicing in that way, that wild abandoned way of a Wei Neng? Yeah, well, at the time I was just like, you know, I was like 23. So when he said it, I was like, huh, what the heck? I don't know. But so it's one of those things that uh, just uh, slowly digested over these last uh, 40 years. And by the way, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, lots of people and people that study with the Katagiri Roshi also have tell, told me that they've had this experience of going back and listening to his talks and, and just thinking like, Oh my God, who was he talking to? Because <laughs> you know, it was the it was us in the room, and we had no clue what he meant at the time. You know, thirty some years later, thirty five years later, it's like oh. So that I think that's that was something about him. Katagiri Roshi wasn't so he wasn't only attending to the immediate present in terms of his teaching. He was looking at the long range and transmitting to the next generation was really important to him. So I think he basically like planted these Dharma seeds in his teaching that would open up over a long period of time. But I think he meant the, the one school Zen, essentially, you know, Zen before there was the division of Soto and Rinzai. And I mean, probably really in terms of that division, I, I'm not sure if he knew that history from a more modern perspective, but that division really didn't happen much until the 18th, 19th centuries. The Soto and Rinzai in Japan as well as in China were, they were, you know, family styles, but, this, but the subtlety of it is, it's so, it's hard to discern. Ru Ching, for instance, Dogen's teacher, just finishing some work uh, with him, him and his teaching, and he's, he, he's painful and quick, which, is, which are characteristics for the Lin Chi school. He's shouting, throwing down his staff, using profanities, this really vivid, vigorous guy. And then Dogen, very kind of sophisticated imperial palace kind of teaching smooth subtle more character more classically the soto flavor but Dogen received transmission from Ruijing so there's just a great deal of diversity in terms of the teaching especially in the ancient ancient world and it's more a matter of personality rather than lineage it's, and it's all pointing to this important truth about what we are and the importance of realizing that intimately. You know, the third view that you mentioned, there is this quotation from Dogen, which I really appreciate, which is, although this inconceivable dharma is abundant in each person, it's not actualized without practice, and it's not experienced without realization. 
Then you also quote Kazan saying, it's been thus for innumerable kalpas, but if you don't have at least one taste of it, if you don't strike at it at least once, you cannot know that you yourself are the wisdom mother of all Buddhas. Right. And that's the that. mother of all Buddhas. How nice, huh? Yes. Well, yay to the moms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to the mother wisdom. <laughs> yes, I, I appreciate that because it does feel like you're saying, you know, the sectarianism. And maybe that has something to do, as you were saying, with the teacher's personalities, where just like nowadays, teachers want to have their own way of communicating or transmitting the Dharma. And sometimes there's not that cohesion, like you're drawing on the just sitting and koan introspection. That feels to me a more comprehensive way for students to practice and embody the Buddha Dharma. Another another virtue of this, the development of this system that goes back, um, you know, a long way, but especially through Hakuin and his successors, and is this really great innovation in terms of what happens after you've had some breakthrough. Mm-hmm. I've talked to a couple of people that were practice leaders at Tazahara. One told me that he never talked to anyone who'd had a Kensho at Tazahara. Another told me that he talked to a whole bunch of people that had Kenshos and Tazar. I inclined to think the second guy was right, that maybe people weren't just talking to the first person about this, about their experiences. But people have these kinds of opening experiences, you know, in life generally, but especially when they start sitting. It just happens for a lot of people. Some degree of openness. And then what do you do? And if, if you, when people report the experience if you just say forget about it it's not important um it doesn't mean that people forget about it you know these kinds of experiences can actually haunt so as dharma teachers i think it's our responsibility to be able to help people who've had these experience kind of heal themselves from the experience of non-duality essentially and that's what the successive and progressive kind of koan introspection does. You know, there's been that kind of thing for a long time, but Hakuin particularly really blew up the system, basically, and his successors, Tori, Gassan in particular, they they really opened it up wide and, you you know, really based on this clear view about how these initial Kensho's are important, but they're just, you know, peeking into Buddha's world. So how can we really open that up so that we can be a source for liberation of all beings? When you're speaking, what else comes up for me is it feels that this pendulum on there's no Kensho, that's not important. Although we do have, of course, the record of the transmission of the lamp or the light, which records, as we know, these profound epiphanies, profound Kensho of the lineage holders, that seems to be evidence that flies in the face of the view that we're already enlightened, so don't don't worry about Kensho and just sit. And then also for me too, it feels similarly something happened with the study of the sutras. So it's like, don't worry about studying. Dogen says that Zazen is the front gate of the Dharma. 
I feel like that we just, which I think is just natural as humans, we sliver out what we feel is important, right? So it's like, don't worry about studying, just sitting. Don't worry about Kensho, just sit. And it just becomes like diluted and it gets refracted through our own karma, karma conditioning. Yeah. And that never really uh, resonated with me. Don't worry about Kensho, we're already enlightened and don't worry about studying anything. Okay. So I just sit here knowing it's practice realization and I've met a number of people as you have as well, who sit in delusion, sit in constant confusion without a re- any relief or any tasting of Kensho. Yeah. So, I mean, Vas Dogen said, if you uh, haven't uh, met a teacher, then stop practicing, you know, so that the um, Zazen is part of the relationship. And that kind of zazen, which is just sitting and spinning in your own stew, that's actually not about relationship zazen. It's just uh, swirling. So, yeah, and you can waste a whole life like that. So it'd be better to go to therapy or join a women's or men's group or something, you know. <laughs> so go go work in a soup kitchen with that hour a day. What uh, do you mean by relationship zazen? Just I want to pop in there and ask you about that. I've not heard that phrase before well it occurs in relationships so you know you know the, the zazen of course is a relational activity you're open to the ten thousand things but specifically also in terms of a personal relationship with a teacher that that what you do in zazen also arises within the context of that relationship so yeah well i think there's a couple things from what you're uh, your, what you were saying earlier one is that so Soto Zen, like all of Buddhism, has the three trainings. So there's uh, precepts, unification or samadhi, and wisdom. All three of those things. And of course, it's a very interactive system. And if you just try to cut one out, it doesn't work that well. I mean, definitely we need the you know ethical investigation. And so there's you know a huge amount of emphasis in the tradition on the monastic precepts, the bodhisattva precepts, etc. What what does it mean to uphold them, and what does it mean to break them <clears throat> as well? And uh, also lots of investigation on how we can unify and calm the mind and, and wisdom. And then also in terms of the, the, the study aspect. And I think it's really important to, you know, study the sutras and go deeply into the, the Buddha Dharma in that way to learn what the Buddha Dharma is. There's, there's kind of, it seems like a proclivity in Western, uh, Western Buddhism. I mean, there's like mindfulness folks seem to take that mindfulness technique and then incorporate it into a kind of a Western secular progressive mindset. And so does that isn't that different, you know, we, to the extent that there is, even with the ritual, the ritual or and or just sitting are kind of extracted from the bigger context of Buddha Dharma and done kind of in isolation then and kind of in the same way taped onto in a way this kind of progressive Western perspective which in many ways has some has some resonance with the Buddha Dharma, but it's not the same thing as the Buddha Dharma. So it's important, and, and seeing things through the lens of the Buddha Dharma has been very powerful for 2,500 years in helping people wake up. So just dismissing it as some ancient thing I think I think is wrong and kind of prejudice also. So it's like dismiss we know better. <laughs> we know better than them in these ways. 
So we do know some things. We've learned some things, of course, as uh, time has gone on. But to just dismiss it, you know, the many aspects of the Buddha Dharma, to dismiss them without going deeply into them is a mistake. And I think it, it also impedes our capacity to transmit to the next generation if we're just transmitting this kind of westernized thing with uh, you know, Zazen taped onto it. It's, it's kind of thin. So I think in that way I'm quite a traditionalist in terms of the texts and what they actually say and the precepts, for example. What do they actually say rather than this? It's very interesting how many of the English translations of the precepts are far away from the precepts. You know, they I mean, you know, kind of a snowball thing where somebody makes a little change and then somebody without looking at the original changes the change and changes the change. And so I think it's fine to, you know, make changes in the Buddha Dharma, but we should do so, I think, in this respectful way after having really thoroughly steeped ourselves in it, rather than doing it just because we feel like it. Or like, I think I know what it means. Maybe you do. Maybe you can express it in some great way that'll, you know, really be helpful to many living beings. But maybe it's just you practicing you. I'm curious how the influence of or the predominance of non-monastic training, householder practitioners in relationship to the ancient ancestors talking about monastic practice, being monastics with this focus on Kensho, because they were sitting, like you're saying, in this one room for 90 days, really focused on that tasting of, of non-duality. And that's not so translatable to the householder practice. And I, I know you have the um, Vine of Obstacles online Sangha. So I'm curious about that because it's wonderful in many, many, many ways, of course, that there's so many lay practitioners. And I think even if we, all we ever do is follow the precepts, we're that much more wholesome, skillful, compassionate people. I, I also just want to be clear too, that I know people who've been at monasteries who haven't had any Kensho, and I know lay practitioners who have. Sure. So I, I want to just be clear about that, and, and I don't want people to misinterpret what I'm saying as, as arrogance. I'm wondering how that monastic tradition has become less important, and what the ramifications have been because it's less important. What's the positive of the monastic practice? What's transferable to a lay practice? And perhaps what's sort of been lost in that? Well, that's a big issue and a big, I think, a big challenge for us now. And of course, Zen is not unique in this way. I mean, through the 20th century, there's been a huge shift out of monasticism worldwide. Going into the 20th century, there were millions of people in monasticism, Europe and Asia particularly. And now it's it's a fraction of that. I mean, a very, you know, so there's been this radical shift. And at the same time, whereas previously many householders in, I think, worldwide were saw their role, their practice was dana paramita, supporting the monastery and karma yoga, <clears throat> following the precepts, etc. And that's a powerful practice, so I don't want to disparage that at all. I've seen, you know, people that have done that practice for a whole life, you know, really shine. So 
But for whatever reason, I think partly it's uh, increasing education. People that were householders were like, well, I want to kind of do that kind of serious practice too that monastics were doing across tradition. But then how to actually make that a reality has been the challenge. So, and when, in terms of Zen, when we look at our ancestors, like <laughs> there are some exceptions, but they stand out because they're exceptions. You know, Layman Pong or something, you have to go back to the, you know, eighth and ninth century. I mean, there's others that recently in Three Pillars of Zen, there's this, you know, Harada Dian Roshi tells about Aiko Iwasaki, this young woman who had tuberculosis, who, who basically went through the, you know, multiple stages of deep awakening practice while she was sick just before she died as a householder completely. It's a very impressive, I think, moving stories of, of uh, lay practitioners are there and they're within the tradition. And yet, even if you expand your view of the ancestors beyond Dogen, which I really think we should do, many great ancestors in the Zen tradition, thousands. It's, it's an amazingly rich uh, tradition, so no need to just focus on Dogen. But almost all of them monastics. And now what? So I think there's a huge need for monastic practice. I think it's really important. I'm kind of puzzled from what I know about young folks. <laughs> Now as an old guy, like it seems like monastic practice should fit with the values quite well. Finding meaning, group practice, very small impact on the planet. The carbon footprint of somebody in a traditional kind of monastery is a hundredth of what, or, or, or less, what the average American anyway is, is putting out. So there's many virtues to it. So it's kind of a puzzle to me that it's not more popular. Monasticism has not taken off so far in the United States, where, you know, uh, almost the same number of monastics now as there was in 1980, maybe a little bit more. And it's and in Japan, rather than monasticism kind of holding its own slight increase over the last 40 years in Japan, has declined dramatically. So there's maybe 500 people in uh, monastic practice in both Soto and Rinzai together in Japan right now. And there's probably about half that in the U.S. So monasticism, although it's a huge part of our tradition, a huge part of the narrative, it's declining. So I think we should work hard on developing and supporting monastics and monasteries. If I ran the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, that would be a very high priority. And at the same time, we have a lot of people that are interested in household practice. So the question is, can we make household practice a real training? So it's not just something that you're doing willy-nilly according to your changing feelings moment to moment. Checking out this talk there, checking out this talk there, etc. That's not really training and letting go of yourself. So can we do that? And with the Vine of Obstacles, I think we can. We think we can provide structure for people and the, the internet stuff does allow us to help people and support people with continuous practice much more so than we were able to do previously in like the Zen Center model 
where people come maybe once a week. It's basically a church. You get a hardcore of people that are coming more often. But even for those folks, they're coming in the morning and then they go about their life and forget about it. And then come back the next day. Well, you can't develop the kind of depth and unification of mind in that. I don't know if you can't. It's rare to be able to do that in that kind of householder life compared to what's possible in monastic. So. I think we really need both, and, and I think we are poised, actually. It's an opportunity for us with the technology that's available to really focus and help people on the householder side, but that doesn't mean that we abandon the monastic side. I think that we should encourage people to try monasticism and try it for three to five years, and then hopefully they'd stay for three to five more. Instead of having compulsory military service, which some countries do, Let's have compulsory monastic practice. <laughs> I don't um, even understand how I maybe became a Zen priest. <laughs> it was never on my bucket list. And, and of, of course, also never really, never thought I'd ever go to a monastery. And once I was there, it was like, I was like a tiger taking to the mountains. It was mm. such a uh, vibrant, vivid, vigorous and rigorous bare bones life. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, I didn't really have any expectations other than being cold <laughs> and having people telling me what to do, which is, yes, that's part of what happened. And, and somehow that allows a surrendering, right? Like that ego, the egos in that bamboo pole. Mm -hmm. I've often heard people say the container of the Tassajara schedule, that monastic schedule, that is itself the teacher independent of who the guiding abbot might be or the guiding abbess might be the schedule itself is a wonderful teacher and and i feel like that container can be somehow translated to householder practice and we just had a wonderful practice period here that was we had 117 people practice online only mm, great. with paul haller and christina lerner and then we had about 40 people sign up for our online session. So I do think this is a vital way of transmitting. And, and, and then how, how deep can that warm hand to warm hand transmission be in the cold room of Zoom, if you will? Well, I think ideally there's there's both in person and online. And for householders, I think there are a lot of things that you can do online, both in terms of study, but also in terms of that kind of day-to-day -day contact mm -hmm. and continuity with practice, making commitments and following through that the online medium allows for that most householders don't experience. So there's that. But I don't think there's any replacement for in-person sashine. I mean, we do retreats online as well, and we do in-person sashine because I don't, I don't think for most people it's, it's really important, you know, and you don't really get the body part online in, in any kind of the same way. So, you know, we emphasize that. So you can kind of learn the, the body part of the practice, huge in person and then practice it on your own but just learning it on your own it's a rare person that can pick that up but i agree with you also that definitely householders have experienced kensho through through the through the centuries and and many householders have also received inca wansan gave inca to yellow who is who was like the prime minister of northern china at the time <laughs> and 
trying to keep his head and body attached because he was the consul, the, the main person consular for Genghis Khan. So, and he received Inca from Wanzhou. So there is that throughout our throughout our history and so it's definitely possible and i've seen it in my own practice and teaching that householders can go deeply and the context that the monastic practice establishes then learning from that and then applying it to householder practitioners i think that's that's the key and you know seeing what this and rather than trying to just do the same thing that we do in person and just have a you know computer there well that sort of works i guess but the the online medium allows for many other things that in person doesn't allow for actually so we can be creative like the diamond sutra right the printing press comes along the diamond sutra is printed it's like one of the first books printed it goes crazy because they use the new technology they didn't just keep writing out the diamond sutra by hand they use the technology that was available i think that's where we're at right now is finding out how we can use this technology to support practice and so being really creative is is important i refer to meditation online as zazoom instead of zazen <laughs> speaking of zen and this word concentration uh, meditation I feel that also, not only is there this covering up of Kensho, there's also, at least my experience has been, the downplaying of the necessity of concentrated mind. <laughs> and maybe that's also somehow uh, a corollary of don't worry about Kensho. And it's interesting because the Vipassana tradition of Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield, that initial echelon of, of pioneers, they, they seem to be okay with that word concentration and unification of mind and using techniques. And in some ways, it's not in some ways, in most every way, it's superseded, if you will, a bona fide tradition like Zen. And, and, and perhaps to its detriment, right? The make mindfulness movement, spend three weekends a year and you get a certificate, you get a, you know, we love our certifications. So I, I think it's also kind of a disservice to let go of that third training of concentration. Mm -hmm. so. I, I do too. And so we, we, we don't hold back from emphasizing that. And also in terms of working with a breakthrough koan, it's really necessary to have some unification of mind and, you know, throughout Buddhist history and also in terms of our present Dharma ecology. There's a wide range of, of people in terms of teachers, in terms of what they recommend for how much concentration is necessary. And uh, some people have students work on the breath for, for years before they would give them a koan. Others give koans almost immediately. And what I've found is that it helps to have some, and it's not so much the amount of time, it's that there's some unification of mind, some sense of oneness with the breath actually a strong experience of oneness with the breath is very important and that from that point then a person can take something up like the mukon and and then it can then it can be something that's really embodied and not some kind of mind game 
it's something that sometimes Soto people think is that the koans are about sitting and thinking about these stories and nothing could be further from the case. It's a waste of time to sit and think about these koan stories. So it's, it's better to study something else than to study a koan intellectually. It's really not what it's intended for. You know, it's intended to cut through and then put that awakening to use to the benefit beings. That's what all, all the koan stories are about. How does somebody find a true teacher of the Buddha Dharma when there's so much online that looks like on the, on the, the, the facade of it, a beautiful website, and maybe people do have an intellectual understanding to a certain degree. How do we parse all that information on the web and find a, a true teacher of a, a teacher with the true eye, yeah, the true Dharma tough. eye? Well, it's tough because also there's kind of a paradox there because it's kind of like that thing in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean where it's an island that you can't get to unless you've been there before. So uh, <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> How do you know who is a true teacher before you've had some sense of truth yourself? And it's a tough problem for, for students. I largely was spared from it because in Minnesota in 1977, there was one teacher. <laughs> I could have traveled around, but there, the numbers were limited. Now it's, it's a big problem. And our, our feelings and intuition necessarily aren't necessarily reliable. So it just might be personal charisma that we're picking up on. So, so we do our best, you know, do our homework is what I recommend for people. Do your homework, read what the person has written, what other credentials, what have they actually done for practice? Because there's also many people frankly, that have the shingle up as a Zen teacher who haven't done that more than a few weekends, like for mindfulness, you know, so there's many people who are not trained either monastically or as householders that are, that have been given transmission. So it's not that they don't have transmission, but they have transmission. Maybe most of them do, but they don't have training. So, and maybe somebody who can, maybe somebody can be a great teacher without training. That is a possibility but it's unlikely. So most people become competent enough teachers through training. A few of us like the sixth ancestor are brilliant enough and kind of gifted enough walking into this life that we can really help people when, and make it not about us without that kind of thoroughgoing training. So, and then you try it. And, and it was several years in of intensive training with Kagiri Roshi before I was like, it just kind of hit me one day. Somebody asked me, who's your teacher? He was just messing with me. And it was like, it just hit me that Katagiri was my teacher. I was surprised. I was really surprised, actually. <laughs> so I was like, oh, <laughs> that's where I'm at now. Actually, it is. And so, and so it takes time. So encourage people to try something and uh, stay with it for long enough to actually get a, get a good taste. Nobody's <laughs> perfect. There are no perfect systems out there. Find a good enough teacher. Yeah, for, I uh, appreciate your making those suggestions. And for me too, I feel like one of the, like you're saying about people's tuition isn't always accurate or because I've had somebody say, well, people can tell. I have had a transmitted teacher say to me, 
people can tell who knows what they're talking about or who's embodying the Dharma. And that I don't agree with that either. There's a big danger. It's just, you know, it can't be just supporting your identity center and making you feel good. As I yes. often tell people, I was, when I was with Kadir Hiroshi, I was uncomfortable for 13 years, you know? So it wasn't supportive of my identity center. Supportive of your identity center. I, I love that. <laughs> yes, being slightly intimidated and uncomfortable by the teacher, I think initially it can be very helpful for some of us. Some of us who need a little bit more of that immediate immediate zen of what's right in front of you and others perhaps need a more gradual uh, soft approach so i think it, it depends on the person and the teacher how that develops and and the buddha does say you need a teacher look for a teacher and don't take what the teacher says at face value and i feel that what's the efficacy or as one teacher I heard said, what's the fruit of the practice? If there's not any attenuation of the three poisons, if there's not a attenuation of this karmic conditioning, if your habit patterns, especially if they're harmful or continuing to cause yourself and others harm, you might want to do Zazen differently. There might be something that's lacking in the Zazen. There might be something that's lacking in the practice, whether it's the precepts, wisdom, or concentration that you might want to ask a teacher to help you with. Using the practice to support your identity center rather than realizing your identity center. So this is a big, a big danger indeed. So for me, there's that touchstone of, like you're saying about the checking questions post-Kensho, there needs to be some, some, some gateless gates along the way to just like any training, right? The idea that, oh, you just sit and then 20 years later, there is a sense of you walk through the fog and you get wet. But as I say to my teacher, it's helpful to have the occasional lightning bolt <laughs> along the way. Yeah, well, and you, you, you might be wearing a you know plastic raincoat and you might be walking under the eaves. So you might need some feedback about whether you're actually in the mist or not. And if you're just you know, doing it on your own, we have such a propensity to self-deception that there's just no guarantee. I like that. The cloak, the, the, the self-deception cloak of plastic. Yeah. <laughs> Wrapping ourselves in the plastic so that... Yeah, we're deceiving ourselves, and that's where a, a teacher of the true eye with the true eye can help us see, feel that plastic. And I feel that around that as well, if there's teachers, like in any, in any place, teachers who are looking for their students to validate them, it's not so easy then for a teacher who has that egoic attachment still Right. to actually help students slice through their identity because that can push students away. And I feel like sometimes there's a coddling kind of Zen, right? Where it's like, oh, it's just, yeah, you just feel better. That's okay. We could meet again and talk about <laughs> the dangers in the student-teacher, the dangers and virtues of the student-teacher relationship. Yes, I would like that. So this will be a to-be-continued podcast at some indeterminate time. So I thank you so much, Dosho, for your time discussing the Buddha Dharma and the one track, no side roads practice of just sitting and 
koan introspection. And I hope that we can continue um, this conversation. Me too. Thank you, Shora. Thank you so much, Dosho. Thank you for anybody who listened. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen Podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma and Alexis Georgopoulos 